It is well with my soul. Amen. Uh, thank you, Orazio, for choosing that song. It's really Psalm 121. It is well with my soul because God Almighty is my keeper. Amen. God Almighty is my help. God Almighty is my guard. God Almighty is my protection. It is well with my soul. No matter what my temporal trials may be, it is always well with my soul. It's a perfect song for this psalm. Last week we talked a bit about C.S. Lewis's, at least one of his indictments uh, of mankind. You remember what he said? He said that left to himself, man is a half-hearted creature. That man is far too easily pleased. In other words, mankind has settled somewhere south of God. To paraphrase uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1, we have exchanged the glory of God for sugar-coated misery, as we talked about last week. We've exchanged infinite joy and pleasure for a little bit of sin. We've exchanged God for stuff. We've exchanged God for pleasure. We've exchanged God for experiences. We've exchanged God for renown. We've exchanged God for accomplishment. Whatever it is that your heart may run after with more passion than it runs after God, then you've exchanged. You've exchanged God. And this is, of course, part of the indictment upon mankind. But praise the Lord, He has staged a cosmic Intervention, that's really what the Bible is all about. We have declared our independence from God and we have left Him, but He has come after us. Amen? He has come after us. Inexplicably, we exchanged God for sin and inexplicably, He has come for us. I don't understand either one of those statements, really. I'm not quite sure how... Adam and Eve thought they could do better than God. I'm not really sure. And I don't think any theologian has ever fully understood that. But Jesus Christ says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh yeah, you and me. Right? (laughs) To save the far easily pleased from being far too easily pleased. We talked a lot about that last week. If you're not quite sure where I'm coming from, you can go download last week's sermon. For what is the most loving thing God can give to His people? What is the most loving thing? Health, wealth, and prosperity, of course. Well, that's what the preachers tell us. Many tell us. But nothing so mundane as that. What is the most loving thing God can give His people? We talked about it last week Himself. Amen? Himself. And this is what God has done in the Gospel. And if we've truly met Jesus, how could we, seriously, how could we ever settle again, right? (laughs) If we've really met Him, if we've really come into relationship with Him, if we've really surrendered our lives to Him, if He really is our Lord and Savior, How would we ever settle? How could we ever settle for anything in this world, anything in this life? You know, as Lewis says, we're just not going to settle for that. We've met God. And He fills my soul. 
in my heart, in my mind, with joy and anticipation of what a billion eternities with Him will look like. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really interested in the stuff of the world. Come on. <laughs> if we've met the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the middle chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117. It's the middle chapter and it's the shortest chapter. I made much of the fact that it's the middle. It, it perfectly links together the, the 116 chapters before and the 116 chapters after because it's a call to praise Christ. It's a call to praise God. You know, it's just it's a short little thing. It's two verses, three times. God says, praise me. And what did we talk about last week? Does God need to shore up His self-esteem? Is that why God's calling His people to praise Him? Is it because God has a need? Or is it because you have a need? It's certainly not because God has a need. It's not about His self-esteem problems. He has none. It's about that we've settled. That's what it's about. Anytime you read a praise, a command, or an exhortation from Scripture to praise God, yes, He's worthy. Of course He's worthy. But I want you, and I challenged you last week, to understand that it's an invitation to you from God. Come and enjoy Me. That's really what it's about. We talked about Lewis's discovery. Lewis stumbled over the Psalms. He didn't understand why God was calling men to praise Him. He sounded like an old As Lewis said, he sounded like an old woman looking for her next compliment. But Lewis said he soon learned, he, he understood through uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that authentic praise is the consummation of enjoyment. We praise God because we know God, because we love God, because we enjoy God. It's an oxymoron to talk about a Christian who does not praise God and who does not find great joy and release in praising God. It is an oxymoron. No such creature exists. If you know Him, as we said last week, you must praise God. You cannot not praise King Jesus. It just wells up in us. We must do it. And I, 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 so I extend the challenge to you, those of you who weren't here last week. Anytime you read praise the Lord in the, in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, about 200 times, God is saying, come and enjoy Me. You were made to enjoy Me? Oh, you're enjoying something less than Me? Repent. Repent. Come to Me. Enjoy Me. I made you to enjoy Me. You know, lust is always used in a negative context. But if you read the Psalms, the psalmist were lusting for God. There was a holy lust, a sacred lust of the psalmist as he sought for God. So every born-again believer, every true lover of Jesus, we hear the invitation, come, enjoy Me! And we're on an, e an eternal adventure, an eternal pilgrimage, an eternal romance. We will enjoy God forever. Amen? It never comes to an end. He is an infinite being. Of course, the merely religious here, Psalm 117, and they think, well, my job is to go to church on Sunday and praise God with my lips. Basta. No. 
that's blasphemy. <laughs> you know, the true Christian understands it's not about simply praising God with our lips. As we talked about last week, it's about praising God with our lives. That's the kind of praise God is calling you to. Not some obligatory, dutiful thing you do on church, uh, uh, do in church on Sunday. But it's how you go out there and live before men. And you incarnate your praise, right? You incarnate your praise and people go, wow! Chinelo must have an awesome God! Amen? Blessing must have an awesome God! Christy must have an awesome God! Look how she loves Him. Look how she brings honor to His name. You can hear it in her speech, but you see it. You see it in her life. This is what God has called His people to do and to be. Last week we talked at some length about the biblical principle that God always acts for the sake of His name. It's pervasive. If you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go download it because God's talking about the greatness of His name. This is, it's a fundamental pervasive theme in Scripture. And it reveals not only God's passion for His glory, but God's passion for His people because God's passion for His glory is God's passion for His people. Because you and I will feast on His glory forever. You know, you read John 17, you can't help but come away with the fact that we will taste the glory of God. He has allowed us to do that. We will be enveloped in it. We'll be caught up in it. We don't become the glory of God, but God allows us to behold it and to some mysterious degree to taste it or experience it. So last week we saw Old Testament, New Testament. God always acts for the sake of His name. We talked about the fact that Jesus came in the Father's name. He manifested the Father's name. All that He did, He did in the Father's name. I'll just stop and ask you, is that how you live? <laughs> Jesus is our model. Amen? And as we closed last week, we talked about the fact Jesus says, My people, they leave houses, Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, and farms. Why? Because they're good little religious boys and girls. No. Because of my name's sake. Jesus says, My people suffer persecution in prison for my name's sake. Jesus says, My people are, are hated and persecuted by the world for my name's sake. Jesus says, My people persevere, endure, and do not grow weary. Oh yeah, you guessed it. For My name's sake. If we know our Bibles just a little bit, we know the prosperity preachers are liars. We know the Gospel that they sell is far too small for the born-again heart. I can't settle for health, wealth, and prosperity Yes, it's a great blessing from God, but it's not the best blessing from God. The best blessing from God is God. Whether it's health, wealth, and prosperity are the exact opposite of that. As long as God is with me, as long as I have God, as long as I'm growing in intimacy with God. We know they're liars. We know they're false teachers. 
and their just judgment will come upon them. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is our treasure. After truly encountering Christ, we know it's not about getting stuff. <laughs> we know it. It's just, it's viscerally, we know it. It's not about getting stuff. It's about getting God. And the born again soul simply must have Jesus. We will settle no more. We will settle no more. We will run to Him and enjoy Him forever. You know, it's the echo of the New Testament. The true lover of Christ will. And these are all scriptural words. And if you want the references, email me. I'll give them to you. But for the sake of time, the true lover of Jesus is willing to suffer afflictions, hardships, distresses, trials, difficulties, rejection, poverty, loss, pain, suffering, sorrow, sickness, tribulations, dangers, and martyrdom. Why? Because we're religious. No, that's not it. Because we love Him. <laughs> we love Him. Above all things, we love Him! And it's our great motivation and joy and privilege in life to make much of Him while I'm here. John Piper's right when he says, it is costly to follow Jesus Christ. There are risks everywhere. This very risk is the means by which the value of Christ shines more brightly. We talked about it a lot in this church. We've mentioned it several times in the last few weeks. The trial is ultimately about the glory of God. We talked a little bit about it Thursday evening at Young Adult Bible Study. We, talked, we looked at that great chapter, John 11. Jesus tarried. He loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, but He tarried. Lazarus died. Jesus says, this is all about the glory of God. You know, and I, I think sometimes we're, we, even as Christians, we become so self-absorbed, so self-consumed, so self-interested that we forget that the universe and everything in it and all that's going on in my life, it's about Jesus Christ. And somehow, I'm to find a way to bring honor and glory to Him in all that I do. So when the storm comes from radically following Jesus, and they will come, you will not be blown over because God is the God of Psalm 121. He is your keeper. Amen? He is your keeper. He is your helper. He is your guard. He is your protector. Now, if you actually believe Psalm 121, you won't go out this door and live like a timid little Christian. You'll go out this door and you'll proclaim the greatness of God in your career, in your marriage, in your neighborhood, at the university, in your studies, what you do for leisure, how you surf the internet. It's all about the glory of God. Every bit of it. As I like to say, the microscopic creature under the rock in the deepest part of the blackest ocean. That's about the glory of God. That creature is. And on the far side of the cosmos, the asteroid on the farthest side of the farthest galaxy, it's about Christ. One day we'll understand it. One day we'll see it. And we'll be in awe, more awe of who He is. Psalm 121, we don't know the author, nor do we know his circumstance, but if you 
read it superficially, you realize this guy's probably in a hard place. It just seems as if he's in a hard place. And what's he doing? In the hard place. He's agonizing. He's just looking at the problem. He's looking at the trial. He's agonizing about the trial. He's despairing over the trial. He's wringing his hands about the trial. Isn't that what he's doing? What's he doing? He's looking at God, right? He looks right through it. I say it to you all the time. He looks right through the trial. It doesn't mean we don't deal with the trial. Of course, we have to deal with the trial. We deal with the trial. We have to prayerfully walk through the trial. Of course, all of that's true, but we're preeminently looking through it and really kind of wondering what good thing God's going to do in it. Amen? This is the way biblically literate Christians deal with the hard thing when it comes. And it's coming. I tell you, it's coming. I'm 59 years old almost. Very close. I've had some trials. And you will not escape them either. They will come. You're not supposed to be surprised when they come. You're supposed to be ready when they come. You're supposed to be ready to look at God. You're supposed to be ready to look at the Lord. You know, an unbeliever, when he's in the hard place, it's just a lot of wasted pain. But as one of my favorite theologians said, for the true Christian, you don't have a tear to spare. You know what he's saying? In every one of those tears, God's doing a good thing. Romans 8.28 is always true. It's always true. So when the trial comes, we know what to do. We look at God. Psalm 71. I love how the psalmist says it. In You, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In Your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline Your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me for You are my rock and my fortress. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse. He says, God's my vast granite fortress. Don't you love it? (laughs) He's my vast granite unassailable fortress. My God is an unassailable fortress. (laughs) Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence shall my help come. The psalmist is looking for help. Why is he looking to the mountains? Many conservative theologians believe, and and I agree, he's looking toward Jerusalem. He's looking toward Mount Zion. He's looking toward Mount Moriah. He's looking toward the temple, whether it's been built yet or it's going to be built. I don't know. I don't know when the psalm was penned. He's looking at Jerusalem, which is a poetic way of saying what? He's looking at God. His help comes from God. And he asks the rhetorical question, from whence shall it come? Verse 2, my help comes from Yahweh. We talked about it last week. Anytime you see LORD in all caps in the English translation, it's Yahweh. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So I'm going to stop and ask you. The psalmist knows from whence his help comes. Do you know? And maybe a more important question. Do you live like you know? 
Are you like a pagan in a crisis? <laughs> As uh, Oswald Chambers says. He says, many Christians live like a pagan in a crisis. We are not pagans. When the crisis comes, we know who holds us. Amen? <laughs> we know from whence our help comes. So my question to you is, are you sure you know where your help comes? And are you living like you know from whence your help comes? The psalmist says, the Lord is my help. Oh yeah. He made everything. He made everything. He is the Creator God. El Shaddai. He is I Am. He is Yahweh. And you and me and the psalmists can happily incarnate our praise because He is the great uncreated Creator God. And I was listening this week... Uh, I think we're going to begin singing it and ask Orazio about it. I was listening this week to Chris Tomlin's song, um, You Do All Things Well. Some of you know this song. But I love how Tomlin talks about him. He says, My God's the star creator. Right? He says, My God's the mountain maker. My God's the ocean tamer. <laughs> He's my help. Beloved, I tell you a lot when you come in here. You don't have to be afraid. You know, fear is something. If you want to indulge it, that's your choice. But... If you belong to Christ, if you belong to I Am, you, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to indulge anxiety. And of course, we know God has called us out of that. So I have a visual aid tonight. I know this is unusual. I never do this. Almost never. Uh, would you like to see it? Of course you would. So, what I want to say to you is, yes, there's the earth. your Helper made the earth. Okay? Are you with me? Oh, your helper made Jupiter and Saturn and these other little, these other little planets. Your helper made the sun. Now look at the earth. Look how small it is. Your helper made the sun. Oh, your helper made Arcturus. The earth is invisible on this scale. Your helper made Arcturus. Oh, your, your helper made Antares. The sun is one pixel on that, on that scale. The sun was one pixel. Our sun was one pixel. And that's just one galaxy. There are billions of galaxies. Yeah, El Shaddai's. He's your helper. Whom should we fear? Don't walk out of here <laughs> with fear in your heart. Give it to the Lord. Give it to Yahweh. El Shaddai is our helper. We can't settle. We can't live small. He's just too awesome. We can, as Jesus says, we can leave houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, and farms. We can be hated and persecuted and imprisoned. We can persevere and, and endure and grow weary because El Shaddai is our helper. Verses 3 and 4, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In verses 3 and 4, we see the first two occurrences of the Hebrew word translated keep. Um, this word, this Hebrew word, is 
is mentioned six times in eight verses. Keep. Now, once it's translated in the NAS, which I use, once it's translated guard, once it's translated protect, it's the same word. God is our keeper. The psalmist says, I can incarnate praise God. God protects me. God is my keeper. As Eugene Peterson calls Him in this verse, as he paraphrases that, He is our guardian God. This first phrase here, that He will not allow our foot to sleep, it holds huge biblical significance. The psalmist is not talking about a physical falling. He's talking about a spiritual falling. This is what is being talked about. Arguably the most famous sermon ever preached, other than every sermon Jesus preached and every sermon the apostles preached, recorded in the Bible, was preached by a theologian named Jonathan Edwards, July 8, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut, USA. His text was Deuteronomy 32-35, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of their calamity is near and their impending thing, things are hastening upon them. The title of his sermon, I don't think I mentioned, is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's worth your read. It's on the internet. But Edwards uses vivid and powerful and sobering images to drive home the point that man apart from Jesus is on a slippery place. He stands in a precarious place. And the whole point of the sermon is that you may slip any minute. You may slip into hell any minute. This is the point of the sermon. There was a great revival <laughs> in His church. It's recorded historically that there were great moans and sighs and and the people were clamoring to repent of their sin and come to Christ as he preached this sermon about the slippery spot that man is in. But what God is saying here to His people, I'll never allow your foot to slip. <laughs> you won't slip into hell. You belong to Me. I, I was looking at some of the other Psalms the Lord says, I've brought My people into a broad place. Psalm 18, into a level place. Psalm 26, into a large place. Psalm 31, into a pleasant place. Psalm 16. God says, I will not allow your foot to slip eternally and ultimately. I remember when uh, I was first converted, I would often spend hours, I would spend my lunch hour, I would leave my job, um, you know, my little CPA job, I'd do all my debits and credits, you know, and I'd have my little pocket protector and I'd put my pencil in. And I'd go to McDonald's and I'd get a burger and I'd drive and sit under, under a shade tree in my little 310 hatchback bomb car. And, and I would sit there under that shade tree at this lake and, and I would worship God. And, and I would dream about when, when the Lord would give me the courage to, you know, to be a, you know, to be a never look back kind of disciple, to, to make much of Jesus and, and surrender my life wholly and completely to the Lord. And there was an old guy I used to listen to sometimes. He would be preaching on during the lunch hour. His name was J. Vernon McGee. He was just an old, crusty, you know, feisty guy, right? And I love that guy. Uh, the Lord used him to really change me a lot. And, but but McGee's 
radio program, it always started with the, with the first verse of How Firm a Foundation. Did anybody know this song? Let me see if I can remember it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, has been laid for you in His excellent Word. What more could He say than to you He has said, than to you whom for refuge to Jesus have fled? Gives me goosebumps still now. How firm a foundation, beloved, you have in Christ Jesus. He's the eternal rock. I said it earlier, He's the unassailable rock. He's the immovable rock. How firm a foundation. What did He say? What more could be said than to you He has said, act. That's my point on this, in this little section, act. He's already said everything you need to hear, act. Go act. <laughs> That's all what preaching is. To exhort you, to remind you who you are, to remind you what you're supposed to do. Go act out there. Yes, you're just love and serve the body of Christ, of course. Go act. There's no new information coming. There's no new information coming. God has given us all that we need. Do you know it? Have you given yourself to the study of it? Are you empowered by it? Are you enlightened by it? If you're not, I'm going to say this lovingly, shame on you. You call yourself a Christian and you don't have your sword attached to your body when you go out there? I lovingly say shame on you. God's given us all we need, beloved. He's given us all we need. He's given us more than we need, really. God says, I will not allow your foot to slip. Emmanuel says the same thing. We know what he said over in John 10, 28. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And did you notice, our God never takes a nap. Did you notice? Our God never takes a siesta. He never gets drowsy. He never falls asleep. 24-7, God is keeping you. Amen? The psalmist says, My God does not sleep, nor does He slumber. When I read it, I thought of Elijah at Mount Carmel. You guys know the story, right? Elijah said, Hey, you priests of Baal, you, 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 know, you, call your God, you call fire down from your God, I'll call fire down from my God. Whichever God sends fire, He's God. And the, and the priests of Baal fell for it, right? And they spent all day long raving, screaming, uh, cutting themselves, and Elijah said around noon, Elijah said, I guess he's on vacation. Or he said, I guess, I guess he's you know, involved with another matter. Then he said, oh, I guess he, maybe he's fallen asleep. Maybe your God fell asleep. Guess what? My God never does. He calls down fire. Bam. The people got on their face and they, on their face and they said, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Amen. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> I love that story. Our God is God. He's never preoccupied. He's never on vacation. He never falls asleep. He stays up all night long. <laughs> keeping you and keeping me. The Scripture tells us that God is not passive, but proactive in this. I think it's a verse I shared with you maybe three or four weeks ago. Second Chronicles, 
Second Chronicles 16.9. It's one of my favorite. It's probably one of your favorites. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. We saw it in Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago. Surely His goodness and loving kindness chase me every day. They chase me. You know, the, the, the thing is, beloved, it seems like a lot of us don't really believe these things. Because we don't seem to really live out these things. And I, listen, I've got as much to confess as you. I'm not holding myself up in any way. But sometimes I am so convicted because my God has given me so much license. And I'm only using a little bit of it. We have complete, total, utter License. You know, we don't have to be a sheeple. You know what a sheeple is, right? Do you know what a sheeple is? <laughs> it's people, but they look like sheep. They're sheeple. You know, they, they watch the media. They watch the world. Oh, they just do what the world does. They just do what the media says you should do. They're just sheep. Not God's sheep. The world's sheep. They look like people, but they're really sheep. They, they're like lemmings. They just, they just, they just get in the herd and they, they follow the, the furry butt behind them and they just go. And you know what happens to lemmings, right? They just go off the cliff. They just charge into the ocean. Every one of them dies. Maybe a not so subtle metaphor for following the ways of the world. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade. On your right hand, the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. We, when I initially read this uh, first statement here in verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. But by the way, this is the third time God has said this in Psalm 121. God is our keeper. But when I first read this, I, my mind went to Psalm number 6. When I was a very young boy, I was not a Christian, but I was a little boy, the church I attended, we always sang a doxology at the end. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was pulled out of Numbers 6, 24-26. And it was our congregational farewell that God will be with you till we meet again, right? And it goes like this. The verse says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. I remember that as a boy. Did you notice in verse 5, God also says He is our shade. No small matter in a Middle Eastern country where the sun can injure or kill. No small matter. God says, I am your shade. Or simply, I am your protection. It also carries the connotation of I am your refreshment. Again, here in verse 6, we see the allusion to the fact that God is a 24-7 God uh, both, both by day and by night. He is our protector. Verses 7 and 8, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and for evermore. This is the fourth, fifth, and sixth time the Hebrew word translated keep is used 
Again, in the NAS, one time it's translated protect, and one time it's translated guard. So, are you sitting in your chair and hearing God speak to you? I don't know what your challenge is. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your concern is. I don't know what your anxiety is. But God has said it six times in eight verses, I am your keeper. What is it you don't believe? What is it you don't understand about that? What is it you don't believe about that? Lovingly as your pastor, (laughs) stop it! Stop it! Stop disbelieving what God has told you. Stop it! I know we have problems, but our God is our keeper. We look through the problem to our great keeper. The psalmist says, God will protect you from all evil. Now, wait a minute. We know Stephen was stoned. We know every disciple but John was martyred. We know Paul was beaten numerous times and ultimately beheaded. We know that the men and women of Hebrews 11 were, quote, mocked, stoned, scourged, put to death by the sword, and sawn in two, unquote. What's the psalmist talking about? Clearly, he's not talking about temporal evil. He's talking about something infinitely more important. He's talking about eternal damnation is what he's talking about. Verse 7, God says, I'll keep your soul. Over in John 10, Jesus says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, the Holy Spirit says, no one or no thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We may suffer greatly here, and many Christians do suffer greatly here. You know, if I didn't have such composure, and I know some of you are probably laughing to yourself, I want to say so much I hate the prosperity gospel so much. It enrages me so much. But anyway, composure. Composure. We may be sawn in two, we may even be martyred, but we will never suffer the second death. We will not suffer the second death. You know the great text. Revelation 26. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Jesus Christ. Amen? Even if death comes for me, and it is coming, but even if it comes now, if I should fall over this minute, and that happens to old guys all the time, it could happen to me, If I fell over this minute, my keeper has me. (laughs) My keeper has me. And I will not suffer the second death. You guys know how Revelation 20 continues. It says about those who reject Jesus, they will be judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. How would you like to be judged according to your deeds, Christian? I know my sin, I know my guilt. But those outside of Christ will be judged according to their deeds. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 8 is a poetic commentary on verse 7. Essentially, there's never not a time that our guardian God is not protecting us 
our going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, in birth and in aging, in the flesh, in the spirit, in our goings, in our comings, in our private affairs, in our public affairs, in our beginnings, in our endings, in our life, in our death, in time and eternity, God is our keeper. The psalmist uses the word here forever. I looked it up. And the Hebrew connotes that we will be with God and held by God everlastingly, perpetually, always for an infinite and unending future. God is holding and keeping us. Jesus says, as I close, My people can and they do. Leave houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, and farms for My name's sake. Jesus says, My people suffer persecution in prison for My name's sake. Jesus says, My people are hated and persecuted by the world for My name's sake. Jesus said, My my people persevere, endure, and do not grow weary for My name's sake. Jesus says, My people incarnate My praise in radical obedience and in hard providence. We've talked a lot about this this year. In radical obedience and in hard providence, our praise is incarnate. We talked about it last week. It's, and I think several weeks ago, our best evangelism is to stand in the trial and praise God. And the world is going, what? What? You praise God? The diagnosis is cancer and you praise God? Yes, I've seen it in my wife. It's true. Real Christians act like this. I'm not saying it's not hard. That's not, I didn't say it was not hard, did I? It was hard for Job the day he lost every single thing. He owned and every single thing he loved, except for his wife. It was hard. But you remember what he did? He worshipped. We can, beloved, incarnate our praise. <clears throat> Because Jesus Christ is the creator of Octuris and Antares. <laughs> he is. And billions more. That's the kind of power God brings to bear in the lives and circumstance of His people. Seriously, who are you afraid of? I just want to close with some of David's words from Psalm 56. David says, and this is really what I hope you walk away with, I hope you know what David says he knows. You know, no more theoretical theism. I know that many in the church, many who call themselves Christians, it's really all academic. It's really theoretical. I do not bring it to my job. I do not bring it to my marriage. I do not bring it to my trial. I do not bring it to the cancer. I do not bring it to my financial situation. I do not bring it to the problems I'm having in my family. I don't bring these things. I worry. Listen to what David says. David says, this I know. So I'm going to ask you, do you know it? It's just between you and God. Do you know it? He says that God is for me. Do you know it? And do you live it?
You're free, beloved. You're free. <laughs> You're free. Satan has no hold on you. Death has no hold on you. Sin has no hold on you. Fear has no hold on you. You're God created in Tari's. And He's your helper. Let me finish David's words. David says, This I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Amen? So I, I hope that we've learned something in Psalm 121. I hope that we will not only praise God with our lips, but we'll be in the world praising God with our lives. I think this is one thing that the Lord is calling us to. I love these psalms. Man, I'm getting so jazzed about these psalms. I love these psalms. There's just so much freedom here, right? So much liberty here. Let's pray together. What an awesome God You are, Lord. What an awesome God You are. There are no words to express the wonder we have in our hearts for who You are and how You love us. We are filled with wonder, awestruck wonder. What an awesome God. The God who effortlessly speaks in Tare's into existence. You are our Helper. You are my keeper. You are my guard. You are my protector. Father, we're going to take this moment to confess our sin before You tonight. At least mine. And I suspect others. Our sin of fear. Our sin of being intimidated by the world our sin of shrinking back, our sin of anxiety, our sin of mistrust, our sin of simply not believing what You say. We confess our sin, Father. Help us. You know our frame. You know how weak we are. Help us, Father. Help us walk like sons and daughters of the King we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, since our pianist is indisposed, we are going to just... Uh, pardon me? Well, let's, can we sing? Can we sing? Let's close. Let's, let's, let's do one verse of one of the songs. Yeah, yeah, let's close. I just like, you know, to sing, to close. Don't you guys? It seems right. Let's do it.